you know, for Wolf of Wall Street, I think you know, top of his game, in my opinion, top of his game. Channel, he's taking Jordan Belfort, the character of a Wolf of Wall Street, and he's personifying him and, 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 you know, splashing him across the screen, not just in, you know, the larger than life character, but the manic style of the movie, right? It's so much noise and so much flash, so much music. I mean, just, I mean, Martin Scorsese is literally and figuratively emptying the kitchen sink out here, right? He's just throwing everything at you, a barrage of noise. And I think that the intent is to sort of distract you in the same way that, uh, like, our media currently distracts us, right? Look, hey, we're bombarding you with all this stuff, but guess what? All these poor people are being robbed and all this stuff. It's just this whole thing of morality and is capitalism this is capitalism the right thing? Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of a podcast directed by. So we are kind of winding down with our long two-month coverage of Martin Scorsese, who uh, strangely is still in the uh, the Twitter news, I guess, because he has come out strong. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Perfect, perfect timing. Banging that drum. We yes. appreciate it, Marty. Thank you. <laughs> absolutely. So we have said this, I think, just about every episode of Scorsese, but this is a weird double feature. Uh, it is. Uh, I think this may yeah. be the weirdest, at least tonally, uh, for me. So we've got the Wolf of Wall Street and Silent. So, Mike, let's just jump into uh, the Wolf of Wall Street. That's where we're starting. So this is a movie I feel you mean like the one that uh, people actually listen to. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. That's a good point. Um, <laughs> st- stick around for Silence. It's a really good movie. We'll get there. Uh, but Wolf of Wall Street, I feel like, is. It's a movie that shocked me how misunderstood it was when it came out. Uh, there seemed to be a lot of people who thought Scorsese was saying, oh yeah, Belfort's a really cool dude. Uh, he's definitely a hero. And that was definitely not the reading I got from this movie when I saw it in the theaters or when I rewatched it. Like, I am i can't imagine watching this movie and be like, yeah, man, that guy rules. Seems like a good dude. Like, what about you? What was your reaction to this character? Because he's a very morally ambiguous character, I guess is the nicest way to put it, if not just a complete terrible person. So what was your reaction when seeing this the first time? I mean, I certainly think that, like, the filmmakers can't shy away from the fact that while he is doing horrible things, uh, DiCaprio sure makes it feel very fun Uh or at least you know at least even when he's put out like the the very comedic sequence where he can't even manage to uh walk down like four steps to get to his car um amazing that element of it like at least the way it's presented initially is like wow this is a crazy time it's a crazy story but at least nothing bad happened like by the grace of god he managed to drive himself home and didn't run into anything uh, now the film pays it off. Like, you know, the, the, the punchline is, uh, of course not. You fucking idiots. Like <laughs> he was on what, really strong quaaludes. What sort of, <laughs> what sort of arrogance would a man have to think that he can just like come away unscathed, but that's kind of the whole like film, right? You know, right. it's just this, uh, willful sort of ignorance, uh, that someone can be touched if you reach a certain like level 
and this guy grabs onto it pretty quickly. But yeah, there's, I mean, what you're saying, there is kind of like a Scarface poster on the dorm room wall aspect, unfortunately, where right. people were like, I would like to be DiCaprio. I would like to have sex with Margot Robbie. Which is and, fair. And I, I mean, would I like get to it. get drunk with Jonah Hill. <laughs> yeah. All, I mean, all of these things uh, sounds hilarious and like the, the American dream. Um, I don't, I, I, to me, it's not, I mean, it is a legitimate criticism, but I, I don't like fault the film for it, for, uh, not going quite as make Goodfellas like, I don't, I don't think the like Goodfellas downfall sequence is, um, highlighted as much here. Certainly the way they like portray drug use, uh, you know, Ray Liotta doesn't make it look particularly sexy when he's like right. searching desperately for helicopters. This always has a little bit of an element of like appeal to it throughout. But no, I certainly don't think he's a good guy. He's just like a really charming asshole. Right. And I think that appeal is kind of the point. This isn't a movie that wraps up nicely. It's not a movie where like, Oh, the bad guy got punished. And I guess who would be the good guy is Kyle Chandler's character, right? The guy who, you know, hunts him down and, figures all this stuff out like he would be the good guy but instead at the end he's still riding that shitty subway ride you know going home and this is life like the rich get richer the poor get poorer and just because he lost everything doesn't mean he's going to be down and out for the rest of his life sometimes the bad guys win and i think that's kind of the point it is a it's an inversion of not only the american dream but also kind of an inversion of like the standard western right the white hat you know, eventually conquers the black hat and everything turns out right in the end. Like sometimes, sometimes assholes flourish. Welcome to America. Money rules. Like that's, that's kind of, I mean, that's how I took this movie. Especially if they never recognize that they're the asshole in their own story or they, they relish like being that, that guy. Um, I think that that moment you're talking about with Kyle Chandler is like, he does, he sort of gives the, the the DiCaprio character this version of Belford, like he gives him that sort of nod, uh, even though he's not in that subway with him. Where he's like, "Well, he's right about that. Like, right. know, he, I'm going back to my life. Like, you know, this was one little blip on my radar where I came in contact with this just horrid, horrid man with far too much money uh, that is totally like undeserved. Uh, but you know, next Monday for him, it's something else." Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that's that would be maybe the one damning thing about this cinematic version of Jordan Belfort is that he never gets over it. He is stunted like he's mm-hmm. forever going to be that guy that never had enough. And so, yeah, I mean, the, the ending of the film where he's trying to, like, bottle whatever essence of him. And it's like a way to justify everything he's done is that he can now better other people by just <laughs> like harnessing their greed and like he's just siphoning away at it. Um, it's a little bit of a downer. It's just not as, uh, and I, I say that like this is not an insult to Goodfellas. It's just not as on the nose, right? You don't right. have the the voiceover where, <laughs> you know, he's just uh, calling himself. Uh, what is it? What is it like? He's just a, like a he's just like a regular Joe. Like yeah, you know, he's just like, and that's like the worst thing in the world for Leota is like I was special and now I'm not. Now right. I'm just like you. Uh, I don't think that uh, DiCaprio, the way it's played, that he recognizes. He's still above them. He's yep. still someone to be looked upon with envy. Yeah, I watched one of these like kind of mini behind the scenes, you know, specials on the on the Blu-ray, and I think they're inter- interviewing 
John Favreau, uh, he was kind of talking about usually, I don't know if I agree with this. He's like, there's two kinds of movies. There's the movies that like, oh, this is what we want to be. And then there's the movies that are warnings, right? Don't be this. And I think what messed people up is this is both, right? We live in a culture that is like, you need to rise to the top. You need to have more money than the next guy. It's the keeping up with the Joneses. This has been a part of American culture for literally decades, right? But then it's also like, this man is terrible. Look how he treated his wife. Look how he treated his friends. Look how he treated his family. He's clearly a terrible person. So I think it leaves some audiences very conflicted. Like, am I supposed to be rooting for this guy or not? And I think that's, I think that is why Leo is perfectly cast here. Because I think he is so naturally charming that that's the only reason this works. Like, this is a movie that, like, man, if you cast Jordan incorrectly as someone who's completely unlikable, then I don't think this movie works. I don't think it looks fun if you have someone who doesn't have the kind of charisma that Leo has. I think it was said by the uh, the director, and I'm forgetting her name, uh, that did uh, American Psycho, uh, Mary Heron. Was her, uh, oh, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. I remember reading or watching uh, some interview with her where uh, when she was casting that film uh, and Patrick Bra- Patrick Bateman went to, uh, you know, went to Christian Bale, but DiCaprio, that was like a, a thing where the project was taken away from both of them. Cause Oliver Stone and DiCaprio expressed like interest as sort of a package deal mm-hmm. and his like quest to like uh, crush Titanic right out of the gate. Like he was mm-hmm. looking for something desperately to counter like, you know, this sort of like, you know, this image that he didn't want of himself. You know, he's a serious sure. actor. He ended up going with the beach, which I think I'm one of the few fans of, uh, there's two of us, my uh, friend. There's two of us. Oh, well, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm on that beach I with knew you and Leo. <laughs> there was something between us, Dave, and finally. Now I finally figured it out. Yeah. <laughs> I guess um, we can end this, this podcast is, now. That's <laughs> yeah. That was about to say the same thing. See, you know, great minds think okay. a lot and probably a few people listening are like, all right, yeah, that is enough. Good. Uh, but anyway, she, she said that Christian Bale was the only one who auditioned, the only one that she wanted for the role because he was the only one that realized that Patrick Bateman was a complete and utter dork. Like he's right. a fucking nerd. Like he has no sense of himself. Uh, he has no taste, uh, no opinions of his own. Like he is totally making up this person, this skin they lives in based on how other people see him and what they see in themselves. Like, and he's constantly comparing himself to others. There's a little bit of that with DiCaprio, but I think that there's that, that idea that he represents. It's like, well, if I could just become rich, Mm -hmm. then I would be totally happy and confident. And he does kind of become a different person. Like it's slightly, it's slightly different, right? He's the scenes with him, McConaughey where he's, you know, the little Padawan learner at like basically how to become a completely like rude asshole who just, uh, and McConaughey, (laughs) I'm not going to deny it would be kind of fun to work for that guy and hang out with him because at the very least, um, I think he would be dead soon. Right. (laughs) And also, like, I guess if you want to jack off on company time, he's fully behind that idea. I mean, yeah, there's definitely like, you know, some things that he's going to uh, allow you to do while you're under his tutelage. But he's not a going to be some sort of like long running empire that he lords over. He's going to burn himself out. Uh, I'm I'm good with water for now, though. Thank you. It's his first day on Wall Street. Give him time. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Mr. Hanna, you were able to, to do 
drugs during the day and then still function, still do your job. How the fuck else would you do this job? Cocaine and hookers, my friend. Right. <laughs> I, I gotta say, I'm incredibly excited to be a part of your firm. I mean, uh, <laughs> the clients you have are absolutely... Talk to clients. Your only responsibility is to put meat on the table. You got a girlfriend? I'm, I'm married. I have a <clears throat> wife. Her name's Teresa. She cuts hair. Congratulations. Thank you. Think about Teresa. Name of the game? Move the money from your client's pocket into your pocket. There's two keys to success in the broker business. First of all, you got to stay relaxed. Yeah. You jerk off? Do I, do I jerk off? Yeah. Yeah, I jerk off, yeah. How many times a week? Like, um, three, three, four, three, four times, maybe. I'm gonna pump those numbers up. Those are rookie numbers in this racket. I, myself, I jerk off at least twice a day. Wow. Once in the morning, right after I work out, and then once right after lunch. Really? Mm-hmm. Okay? I want to. That's not why I do it. Mm-hmm. I do it because I fucking need to. I, I don't know. The, the film maybe, you know, needed, maybe needed more like on the come up or the come down. Uh, but I, I think it allows people to like put themselves in that, his shoes more. Like uh-huh. we know, since we know so little about him other than like, well, I tried to do this thing and then it like, it was taken from me. And so I had to make it on my own. Like I had to figure out an end to this. Right. Like the, I'm sure you know people, you know, like even in crazy California, whatever like new version of toast you are going to come up with, uh, <laughs> that has, someone has some sort of crazy scheme. Like if they could just break through. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he does represent that a little bit more. Uh, there's a barrier of entry, even in the plot of Goodfellas, as far as who's allowed in to right. that. And so when we were talking about it, I talked about like that I had, Obviously, in Kentucky, you have some distance from this, from the mafia. I'm like, well, that's that thing in movies, I guess, and I've heard about it. But uh, The Wolf of Wall Street, I mean, it's basically a guy that, like, is able to write his own lottery ticket. And then you get to fantasize with him about, like, what would I do with that money? I think people in the audience are meant to couch it like, oh, well, I wouldn't do that. I would not throw a little person at a target or (laughs) shave a woman's head for how much money? Like 10 grand or whatever? Like, I, I don't know. Wasn't it wasn't enough that you could retire? <laughs> like I was like, that's not a lot of money. Um, I think you it's probably up... unfair, but I think both of us would shave our heads. I don't uh, think we'd well, be yeah. giving too much. <laughs> for, I'd do that for ten dollars. Are you kidding? That's, that's fine. Dave, cheap. I was gonna say a hundred, and I thought <laughs> Look, I was a cheap whore. But it's so close already. Bucks. It's really not that much of a step. Um, but I think actually, you bring up a good point that I didn't really think about, and I think this may be why. People took this movie in different ways. So his choice point in this movie to becoming a piece of shit for most of his life is, I think, that that lunch with McConaughey's character, right? Because up till then, he's like, no, I have a wife. You know, I don't want to do drugs. I want to do that. He's doing the right thing. And that is the moment where he switches. And then the movie has essentially two and a half hours of like, whoa, look at this wild life. Isn't it crazy? And as you mentioned, that come down is really quick too. So it doesn't, and I think this is purposeful. Scorsese is not allowing you to take any time with that. He's like, no, no, just deal with the fact that you enjoyed that. Deal with the, you know, 140 minutes that you just loved, that you laughed when he did all this stuff. And now I'm only going to give you like 10 minutes to wrap your head around like, oh, I just rooted for a piece of shit for the length of a regular movie. <laughs> like, so it doesn't give you a lot of leeway, which 
you know, is kind of a gutsy thing to do for a director, a story like this, because he's essentially framing it a little bit like a biopic and biopics tend to, to deify their main characters. Right. So that's kind of what this does. And then it kind of flips everything on his head at the end and be like, look, his wife left him, his friends left him. He doesn't have any money. And now he's just, you know, abusing normal people on the street, just like he did at the very beginning. And remember you laughed at that when he was flipping off the guy on the, at the, during the phone call. And now you're like, Oh, I see what he became. Now that's bad. And it takes us a while to grasp it. It's one of those movies, I think, that you do have to sit with a little bit and kind of deal with the fact that, like, he's a very easy guy to root for. And now you can understand all the people he abused, what they're feeling like to a lesser degree. I mean, you certainly don't have, like, uh, the Tom Cruise character in The Firm. Like, you don't have someone that you're, like, right. bringing into this world who then, like, realizes, like, oh, shit, like, I'm not like this. Like, I find, right. I find myself in this position, in this environment, but that's not me. Yeah. It's interesting that like when it is not him uh, in that, that lunch with McConaughey, um, you know, he gets, he doesn't fully understand the world he's into. He's like, oh. well, this guy's <laughs> this masturbating maniac seems to be doing quite well for himself. <laughs> like, you know, I'll, I'll try it. I won't fully become that. Uh, it's, I think it's a pretty important distinction to have that taken away from him before he becomes it. And then he finds his way there on his own. He chooses. Like, you know, he, without yeah. someone swinging. Okay. Yeah, it's not Wall Street. There's no Michael Douglas, Charlie Sheen right. dynamic here. He he just got a taste of it. And then just, yeah, it's just like he's able to like uh, to, to build his own bomb here, which I think uh, is a fantasy of, of most people that like they could do that. But it's, it's the supporting characters, I think, make it really different for most films. There's another one. A lesser like scene, one called Boiler Room, mm-hmm. uh, with Vin Diesel, uh, a lot right? of actors. Ben Affleck, yeah, Ravisi. Uh, Ben Affleck has basically the Matthew McConaughey role, where I think I think he has two scenes. Uh, but yeah, he basically comes in and is the big swinging dick, and it's like you know, look at me, don't you want to be me? Uh, that film, it's not as fun. I, I like that movie, but it's because you have someone you know in this ensemble cast. Uh, has like a beating heart here mm-hmm. and they're able to sort of measure themselves against each other as far as like, well, I'm not that bad. The Wolf of Wall Street, like DiCaprio, Jonah Hill, uh, even his father, Rob Reiner. Like, <laughs> it had a great saying, performance, hey. by the way. Rob Reiner like steals every season. In yeah, movie. Like, even him, his fatherly advice is basically like, you know, please check yourself as far as like the STDs you may contract as you're cheating on your wife. Right. Uh, then they talk about, you know, the the changing like literal landscape of pubic hair. Uh, I mean, that's, you know, they get into like they get distracted and they, they, they they're never looking at like, oh, who are you as a person? It's more like, like you said, like, wow, that's some crazy shit. And then they, they get into the weeds on the crazy shit. Right, like, right. <laughs> even the, when they're talking about uh, tossing the little person, they get into the weeds as far as like, you know. There's limits, what would my be, friend. We can't do that. It would be politically correct in this particular situation. It's like, no one says uh, nothing, nothing would be. <laughs> Not what are you talking throwing about? them at a dartboard? <laughs> that would be the politically yeah, exactly. correct thing to do. Yeah, I think you yeah, bring Everyone's up- pretty locked up. Which I think that adds to the frat mentality of it. Yes. That it's like a group of guys that don't check each other. Like they just have like found someone else. And it's like, if it's okay that he's doing it, then I can be a monster as well. And right. I'll recruit another monster. And they just like, you know, they're, they're little hype men. They type each other up. Yeah, absolutely. I think 
the other thing that's interesting to me, like you're right, all of his friends, like whether you're talking about Jonah Hill or John Bernthal's character, who is a complete maniac, um, even the like the lesser characters below them, like the people in the office, like they're all maniacs. They're all monsters. Like you see them, like you see their reactions to these things and they, they look not just like they're enjoying it, but like they are intoxicated by this. So there's like no one to check anyone in the, (laughs) throughout this entire movie, like the women, the men, you know, the parents, everybody is just like, well, we're making money. So let's do it. And I think it all, to me, really comes to a head during the I'm not fucking leaving speech. For years, I've been telling you guys never to take no for an answer, right? You know, to to keep pushing, to never hang up the phone until you get what you want. Because you all deserve it. You know, this fucking deal that I'm about to sign, barring me from the securities industry, barring me from Stratton, my home. <laughs> the fuck is that? You know? I'll tell you what it is. It's 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 me taking no for an answer, you know. It's them it's them selling me, not the other way around. It's it's me being a hypocrite is what it is. So You know what? I'm not leaving. I'm not leaving. I'm not fucking leaving! The show goes on! This is my home! They're gonna need a fucking wrecking ball to take me out of here. <laughs> They're gonna need to send in the National Guard a fucking SWAT team, cause I ain't going nowhere. Uh, which is, of course, a great, a fantastic Leo moment. Like he really, I was really impressed with him here because I think even though he is a character, you, if you're coming at this from a certain perspective, you root for him because he is your protagonist. He is your main character. He's not afraid to make himself look foolish. He's not afraid to go over the top, but I don't think he ever goes too far where you're just like, oh, I can't take this guy seriously as a character anymore. Like he does still feel like a real person in this world. And, but you can see everyone around him, like so happy about this moment. And except for maybe one person, like no one is realizing like, this is literally the worst thing you can do for everyone in this room. Like there's well, no barometer. in this movie. They're a group of uh, children, basically. Yeah. That they don't want the party to end. They don't want the adult in the room to basically say like, okay, it's over the line or basically go home. Like mm-hmm. this point in your life is over. There's that like stunted development where, um, you know, they, they in that sequence he talks about there's a, a woman that works there that is, you know, she's moved very high up to this like boys club. Uh, and and talks about where she came from as a single mom. And he like took a chance on her because – 
you know, his Professor X mutant power is like seeing someone that can like harness their greed to like <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> further themselves and, and himself. Um, but you know, they don't. It's like all these things where they got like kicked around. Jonah Hill, um, in a very sort of Jonah Hill role, at least initially, you know, it was like, oh, he's just sort of a sight gag. Um, is just a walking joke. Like yeah, they even make mention the voiceover, like his his like teeth, these like excessively large <laughs> teeth that he has. Uh, this weird sort of like preppy like sensibility he has this like these glasses that he wears to make himself look smart. They're all sight gags, and they just don't want to go back to that. Mm-hmm. So they they don't want Rob Reiner or uh, is John Favreau? Is he one of like the sort of like supposed adults in the room? Yes. It's like maybe yeah. we dial it back. Yeah. Um, and the funny thing is those two, the, the, you know, Keystone cops there, they, they don't want to be that role either. They don't right. want to like, you know, they, they, they've been assigned it, but they're not going to push that hard. Right. And so, yeah, there's, there's some sort of like, like fantasy to this where it's like, if we can just keep it going long enough, and uh, I don't know. It's it's never healthy for like audiences to like <laughs> to be like, yeah, that's what I want my life to be like. That one like sort of drug induced haze. Right. Even though maybe it lasted five six years, I just want that to be my life. Because the point of the movie should be like, uh, yeah, it's always there's always going to be an endpoint to any of this insanity, right. uh, and in particular this and <laughs> what they're doing to their bodies. That's probably one thing I would take issue with. Is I don't know if. Uh, I already mentioned Patrick Bateman, but I don't know if DiCaprio is really taking uh, care of himself as much as uh, Christian Bale is an no, American Psycho. Not. And definitely I think what he's not. consuming is going to look pretty haggard, pretty rough, pretty soon. I was also thinking, like, is this is this Scorsese's like first like out and out comedy? Like, this is a comedy through and through. Like, there's dramatic moments for sure, but this is this most. Of, I would say ninety percent of this movie is played for laughs. Like that that Popeye sequence. Uh, where he gets drugs in his system so he can move off the floor is hilarious. It's, I mean, and you know, you talked about Jonah Hill, who made actually quite a good living, like just being the other guy in movies with honest to God bankable movie stars, right? You had Moneyball with Brad Pitt, and then this. Uh, and talk about sight gag. I mean, we didn't talk about the fact that, like, you know, the biggest sight gag for Jonah Hill maybe is the prosthetic penis that is used. Uh, when our lead female character is first introduced, which is like that should be the cue that like wow this movie is really going for it. Like we're not we're not going to pull any punches. We're just going to lean in here. Yeah, as far as the the first out and out comedy, like I think of before this uh, little series that we're, we've done for now two months well, after uh, hours, I would have said after after hours, yeah. but but even on rewatch, I remember like I had forgotten like how not fun a lot of it is like there is like actually a legitimate threat. There's, there's more threatening things happening in after hours than there is with this based on true story where a man's career should be threatened numerous times by the government interceding on his behalf for all of the shitty things he's doing. But yeah, after hours, um, I mean, you were no fan of New York, New York, which is a, a lovely rom-com. I mean, yeah. I mean, I guess like, I mean, that's technically a, a comedy, abusive relationship. But I don't know. It's like, it's that would be a comedy of the Golden Globes for sure. Like that, it does have that. But it's not. There's not a lot of moments played for big laughs. You know what I mean? Like it's not. I don't. I think it's. You know. I think parts of it are supposed to be heartwarming and enjoyable. But it doesn't feel like a movie. Be like, okay, here's the big laugh. Whereas this, there are several moments where they are really going for the laughs. 
How do you think this one stacks up to uh, American Hustle came out, I think, within like weeks of each other? And like tonally, they're they're both kind of going for those like big, broad characters, big gags. And they're both about greed. But American Hustle is coming at it from like uh, these are not successful people. These are like the (laughs) low men on the totem pole who somehow got themselves involved with the government and this scheme and this like set up job. Uh, and here's someone who aspired to like challenge the government. I mean, you have in Wolf of Wall Street. I love the the fun coupons sequence where DiCaprio's <laughs> oh, just raining money. <laughs> hey, you guys want to take some lobsters for your ride home? Fucking miserable pricks. I know you can't afford them. Fucking cheap fucks. Fucking hey, fellas, look what I found in my pocket. Look, a year's salary right here. That's what I call them? Fun coupons. See that? A fun coupon. But I always thought like those two coming out so close together. That's um, a that's a good comparison. People, I I never. But I, I felt like at the time people had less of a problem with American Hustle. Not even getting into the David O. Russell aspect of it. Yes. Like because because of that because they felt like oh these are people to be made fun of. Like right. Christian Bale is introduced trying to put on his toupee. Uh, let's watch these idiots go at it with each other. Right. Yeah. I think. I think that's the big difference. There's another big difference that I'll get to in a second, but I think the the main big difference here is that those are people that we do not aspire to, right? But Leo is a movie star looking like a movie star, right? You know, Margot uh, Robbie, right? Like, Margot Robbie, a movie star, like, so she walks in, yeah, yeah, and we haven't even brought her up, but just like what an amazing performance for an unknown actress to give, like. Leo is one of one of our greatest working actors. I think that's that's fair to say. And there's not a single scene that the two of them have together where she looks intimidated, where she gets where she gets overshadowed. Like they work really, really well together. I think she's absolutely fantastic here. Uh, the other big difference between those two movies is uh, this movie is good. American oh, there Hustle we go. Is not. <laughs> I, I you were going to go, you know, a little more uh, subtle, but a jab, uh, nevertheless. That you're getting like pure. Scorsese here, as opposed to some uh, watered down uh, ripoff version. Oh, I didn't know we were talking about Joker again. I didn't know we were. <laughs> Speaking of, of things people should not aspire to be, but are probably going to. That's another one, another Scarface poster on the wall of uh, yep. you know future college dorms. I assume with that one. Yeah, absolutely, and I, I think you know uh, Scorsese is an interesting director this way because i think we talked about it when we went uh last month when we talked about taxi driver and how i think that movie changes as you age like when you're a when you're a 20 something uh like he seems kind of badass like he's definitely not like a good guy but you're like oh man Travis Bickle fucking rules and now you watch it and you're like oh my god this man is a nightmare right and this is the same thing it doesn't give you easy answers right and that's one of the things I love about Scorsese. Also, don't you just feel tired? Yes. (laughs) I think six years later, I just feel exhausted watching it. Whereas maybe even six years ago, I probably feel still felt slightly tired. I can see maybe a young buck watching this and be like, that's great. I want my life to be that. Now I'm like, that is, this is a horror movie. I want no part of this. Like (laughs) I want to be Rob Reiner annoyed that someone's calling while I'm trying to watch the program. (laughs) Absolutely. But I think that is the great thing about Scorsese is he makes complicated movies, but never, never seems to feel pressure to like 
have a moment where you like turn to the audience and go, this is what's happening, guys, in case you missed it. Here's the message I'm trying to give you. You know, he lets you figure it out for yourself. And I think this is the same. And I think that low turnaround time really messed people up. And they took some messages from this, maybe that that Scorsese wasn't really going for. But I think he'd kind of enjoy that. Like, he's given interviews about this, and he never is like, oh, no, you shouldn't like him. He's like, you know, this is the the great thing about movies, man. You can take from it what you want to take from it. I can't control what message you're going to take from it. I definitely had my own thoughts on it, but it's yours now, you know? And he's willing to do that as a director and kind of always has been. Like, if you go back to even, like, Mean Streets, it wasn't like he laid things out for people and was like, here, let me explain to you why they're doing what they're doing. You have to figure it out. And this movie, in that way, is no different. It's funnier, it's bigger and broader and longer in runtime, but he is kind of leaving it at your feet and going, like, what do you think? Like, it's turning, just like Goodfellas does at the end, sometimes maybe a little bit too literally, it's like turning the camera on you. And it's like, Here you go. What do you think? Is it okay to be a normal person? Is it okay that Jordan is still striving after all this time? I mean, he attempted to do that with the uh, next film you're going to talk about on this podcast. And uh, people said, no, I'm good. (laughs) I don't need to see that. (laughs) Yeah. I think, are we not going from his, uh, this was his most successful film financially, right? Yeah. Box office. So maybe his least successful. (laughs) (laughs) I wonder what made more money, Silence or Mean Streets. I wonder which one did better. I'm going to go with Mean Streets, if I had to guess. Yeah, but this movie, I I don't really think... I'm trying to think, like, okay, what are what are the weak points of this movie? And it's hard to pick out because no, there are... Yeah, I, I mean, so. I don't really think there is either. Because you could say, like, oh, there's moments that are too over the top. But that's, like, kind of the point, you know? And I, But I think it's interesting to kind of compare and contrast the moments early in the movie to the moments in the middle of the movie. Like, I think it's much easier to root for Jordan when he's got his group of friends together. And even though they are still abusing people, right? They're still taking their money for things that the money they'll never get back. And they're flipping them off to the, to the phone and that whole sequence, which is really enjoyable. It's really funny. Like having to hush his friends while he's essentially making a prank call that's making him money. Like that's essentially what that sequence is. My wife had a huge uh, problem with that scene. There's no way that person would not hear those people snickering and howling and hooting. Totally agreed. It's a very presentational scene for sure. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, it's one of those things you're like, okay, this is just, I got to let this go. Cause there is no way that that guy could not have heard these chuckleheads just losing it. (laughs) I mean, I had to shush her. I'm like, look, Marty's taking, Slings and arrows all over Twitter. I like, don't pile on. Let He's him had have a rough this. go of it. I'm Let like, him have yeah. this moment. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Can he have a win, please? God, yes, for once. Marty. Uh, so that scene is, is much easier to root for because I think, like, you know, it's, it's the standard biopic story, right? Pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, doing something for yourself, bringing your friends along. And then you get later in the movie where things just get crazier and crazier. And, he's, and it be, you begin to think, like, if you can separate yourself from that journey— you're like, okay, how much is enough, man? You're a millionaire. He's pretty reckless with his uh, his yachts and stuff and helicopters and whatever else. So I don't know. He does rack up bills probably at an insane true. rate. True. But I, I, I was... think the Punisher was probably the most financially uh, sensible one with yeah. his like you know meager cut. Yes. Uh, I never thought I would feel sorry for uh, 
John Bernthal, in particular the way he's presented here, where I feel like maybe he's the only adult in the room because he yeah. wants people to and he's the uh, drug not dealer. draw attention. He's, he's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but also, I think this features uh, the best uh, Jean Dujardin performance uh, that we've seen because uh, it's much, much better than I the mean, artist. Much better than uh, yeah, the artist. Yeah, I was about to say, so. what else is there? <laughs> so yeah, um, I th- I think you know this is this is one of one of my favorite Scorsese movies. I think because you can view it on two levels. You can view it as just like, well, this is a romp. Like it's really fun. It's really funny. But also like risk, if you but moves. but if you think more deeply about it, I think there's a lot going on underneath too. But again, he's not gonna he's just not just gonna deliver it to you. You actually have to think. Sorry, uh, you know, filmmakers, filmgoers who would rather just see, uh, you know, movies that are events. Uh, sometimes you have to think for yourself when you watch a movie. <laughs> Team well, Marty. The Dave, yeah, Dave's, Dave's, you know, signed to lecture them. I'm sure that's really going to bring them in for our right. second half when we discuss silence. <laughs> you, have, The lecture has uh, not begun, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you're... Uh, your expert for this this month uh, has like a, a friendly, a fan friendly like bumper clip you can put in here where he reels them back in for the I second mean, half. I doubt kind of, it. He's pretty fan friendly. He's pretty like you know the the normal movie goer loves Marvel movies, big fan, so it should go really well. But what's what, what's the one Scorsese movie that he really wants us to talk about though? That he it just I don't know what you're talking about. Don't remember the name of that movie. Sounds sounds like a big event. It makes Kun Dune. Uh, our favorite, our favorite make, superhero, the, the Dalai Lama. That's <laughs> <laughs> all right. So on that note, uh, we are going to take a quick break. Hear from our expert, Hiro of the True Romance Film Podcast, and then come back and talk about silence. Yeah. So I, I'll, I'll describe it this way. Silence was one of the favorite films of the year for me. What the year came out, it was on my, my top five list or something like that when I was making lists then. But it was a movie that I, I pretty positive I never want to watch again. Um, I, I it's so it asks so much of you, right? It asks so much of you to like dig into these questions and to, to sit through three something hours of of Andrew Garfield getting beat up and and uh, and Kylo Ren just suffering. Um, it's just, but at the same time, it, it doesn't bore you. It doesn't, it, it's a, it's a fully engrossing film from the point of, I get exactly what he's trying to say, right? He's trying to, he's trying to fight this morality that goes against his religion's morality, right? Or what's right and what's wrong. And, and these questions, and these, these, this dedication to this religion, to these, these teachings, and, and that sort of thing, and there's just so much going on to this in this movie that I think that again, when you know, when I was talking about Wolf of Wall Street, Scorsese being at the top of his game, he sort of upped the ante here. Okay, we're back. We are now back to talk about silence. Uh, so this is the movie I think 
we had talked about, you know, off mic, uh, when this movie came out, uh, back in 2016, this was one of those movies that I really loved, but it was one of those that seemed like an obvious Oscar movie, but Marty just couldn't get his shit together and release it before December 29th or whatever it was. Like it came out, I think like just on the cusp. So, (laughs) and like, you know, it's a, it's a tough sit anyway. Uh, especially if you're talking about, you know, at home with a bunch of screeners, you're like, oh, I got all these choices. Uh, let's, let's watch this 160 minute movie about faith. Uh, I don't know if I'm in the mood for that. And you kind of went through that going to rewatch this, right? Where it's like, sometimes it's hard. It's not a movie you can just kind of put on and be like, oh, I'm in the mood for silence. Let's, let's do that. It's a lot to take in. I'm pretty sure this was my, uh, number two movie for uh for that particular year mm-hmm. i was very high on it at the time and i i lamented that uh you know that <laughs> ignored uh from audiences i think there was probably a certain expectation like how do you market this and yeah. if they express interest they may you know reiterate just what you just said mm, i don't know if i feel like that today uh and yeah that is that was my experience because uh you know behind the uh the curtain here uh, yeah, I pretty much like put this podcast on hold as far as recording uh, wise because I watched Wolf of Wall Street weeks ago and every time like I would text you and be like, yeah, I could probably watch Silence. I, I have a window for three hours of torture. Uh, I'm not saying the film is torture, but it's about there's, there's torture in it. Torture. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and every time I'm like, uh I, you know what? Let me watch this one other thing I've got here on my little. <laughs> Literally Apple TV. anything no, else? <laughs> yeah, just not in the mood. Um, however, once I I got into it, a little <laughs> black humor for the listeners here. Uh, had a family member die within the last week. I'm like, you know what? Perfect timing. <laughs> Now's the time to watch Silence. See, I've gone to a funeral. Uh, it was nothing tragic, I assure you. If anyone offended by this person they do not know um (laughs) (laughs) but even then um okay so you you come at this like this is basically a part two i think our like last temptation conversation Mm -hmm. so you you have this spiritual background that i just strangely uh in kentucky uh the you know red state that's attempting to uh try to go some bit of how that happened to Uh, you that's it's your mom i know i I know that's the reason yeah my mom just said (laughs) no no, we're not gonna hang out with the nerd herd uh, in the in the church. Um, yeah, so it's just never been a part of my life. So I, whenever I watch something like this, I'm it's that sort of like theoretical thing where it's like I understand there is that passion for right. this, but I've n- never never been touched by this at all. So I, I wonder if I'm you know more accepting of it mm-hmm. uh, than you. Um, but you're you're a big fan of this one. So how, how do you think it? I guess first off. How, how does it stack up to something like Last Temptation, which is, you know, the story, an alternate, I guess, version as far as the story of Christ? Yeah, it's a that's a tough comparison. Um, I think simply because of when these movies were made, not in terms of like oh, films were made different back then, but just who Martin Scorsese was. Like he was a much younger, much more fiery director back then, and this is much more of. I, I feel like it's a it's a man looking back, um, and thinking about faith and thinking about. You know, is there a point to faith? Is faith uh, a public declaration? Or is it something we, in the case of this character, literally, is it something we hold close to us and don't have to share with other people? And should we value our faith 
over the health of other people. Like there are many, there are many scenes in this movie and it caught a lot of flack for this actually, uh, where, you know, there is a white guy, uh, who very easily could end the suffering of people of color in the movie and chooses not to because of his faith. Um, so, you know, there's some difficult lines to dance around, uh, with that. But I think also you have sequences where there are the people of color in this movie in question are coming up to him and telling him to keep his faith, that faith is important, that it's important to them too. So I think those two things kind of fly in the face of one another. Uh, but optics wise, it's a weird thing. I, so, you know, I, I know, I know you probably hate it when people make these distinctions, but I think. Uh, Temptation is a more enjoyable movie and Silence is a better movie. Um, I think Silence takes its time. I think Silence is, we talked about how, uh, Last (laughs) Temptation. Only this comparison. Would you, it's funny just to hear the last temptation is like, that's far more enjoyable. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Only between these two. These might be the two least enjoyable movies in his, in his canon, but there is still a difference between the two. And I feel like we talked about how, uh, Last Temptation was shot really quickly. It was almost like guerrilla filmmaking. And this you can really tell. It's it's a movie both on screen and in production that really took its time. Um, and I think you can feel that kind of in every shot. Like, you know, they there used to be that account like every, every frame of painting. And that's what this movie feels like to me. Like you could pause this and it's just like, oh my, it's stunning. Stunning to look at. Um, and I also think it features some great performances and not just by the white actors. <laughs> like there are, there are great performances throughout this movie. And this is the That's movie. Interesting. You keep going back to that. Well, this is the movie I... that I found it really funny that Andrew Garfield was nominated for an Oscar, but not for this, like that he got nominated for, uh, what was that Mel Gibson well, movie? What was it? Yeah. Uh... He worked with a master on that one. Oh. Uh, and this yeah. Was, you know, Mel... he was slumming it. <laughs> yes. But I think he's tremendous here. Like I think he's, He's fantastic. Um, and Adam Driver is good, but he's in a very limited role. This is a really Garfield's movie. Um, and then I'm trying to remember the name of uh, of the character who, like, you know, constantly, quote unquote, loses his faith. Like, he constantly turns his back and then comes back for, you know, he Kikichiro? wants forgiveness. Kikichiro. Yeah, Kikichiro. And he's Better with that phenomenal. than Spanish. I think actually. he's probably <laughs> the best performance in this movie. Like, it's stunning it's a fantastic no nah, it's, it's gotta be one of the white guys as you refer to them clearly today. liam neeson uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh qui-gon looked really distressed here with his his training um and i remember some of the criticism of that as far as the you know uh the white dudes here but the, you know these two uh portuguese uh, men, which I think is one of the changes as far as uh, I'm talking about the novel, as far mm. as who these people like were based on. I think I think it was a Spanish guy. I think was the Andrew Garfield, so. as far as historically who he was based on. Um, I di- I didn't understand. Of course, you know those complaints came with none of these people watching the fucking thing because uh, I would have seen them in my theater based <laughs> on the box office receipts. Yeah, we're like the only two who saw it, so. Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, and and expert Hiro, uh, he he was there. Uh, you know, all three of us, you know, yes. we carpooled to the the theater. Um, because it, it is, a, I mean, it's as I said, as an outsider to organized religion, like I I, I dug that aspect of it where it's not. Uh, I guess it's the opposite of cultural appropriation, where it's like, no, no, we're gonna l- let me put hands to this. Like, you know, what what <laughs> your culture uh, represents, you know, those ideas. 
shit. Don't need them. This is this is where it's at. This is, and I mean, it's spoken of. Well, it's spoken of with slightly more nuance. I think it's the probably the moment in the film where Andrew Garfield uh, comes across as a bit of a bully, and it's it's interesting where he can be portrayed as a bully. There is an interesting story about the daimyo who ruled there. He had four concubines. Four. They were all beautiful, but they... I'm sorry. Maybe this is not a story for a celibate priest. It's all right. Please go on. In any case, the daimyo's concubines were all jealous, and they fought and fought without end. So the daimyo of Hirado drove them away from his castle, and peace came into his life again. Do you think this story has a lesson? That this was a very wise man. I'm glad. That means you understand the daimyo is like Japan. And these concubines are Spain, Portugal, Holland, England, each trying to gain the advantage against the other and destroy the house in the process. Since you say this man is wise, you will understand why we must outlaw the Kirishtan. Well, our church teaches monogamy. One wife. Uh-huh. What if Japan were to choose one lawful wife from the four? You mean Portugal? No. I mean the Holy Church. <laughs> Don't you think it would be better for the man to forget about foreign women and choose one of his own? Nationality is not so important when it comes to a marriage. What matters is love. Love and fidelity. Ah, love. Padre, there are men who are plagued by the persistent love of an ugly woman. Is that what missionary work is to you? An ugly woman? Well... Yes. Baron. A barren woman cannot be a true wife. If the gospel has lost its way here, it's not the fault of the church. It is the fault of those who tear away the faithful from their faith like a husband from a wife. You mean me? Padre, you missionaries do not seem to know Japan. And you, honorable inquisitor, do not seem to know Christianity. But he comes across as a bully when he is a captive. And it, it's, yeah. a, it's an interesting dynamic where you're like, well, this guy, what a prick. And you're like, oh, wait, he's probably about to be tortured or watch people tortured in front of him and killed. Uh, so yeah, there's no, there's no heroes in this, this but I story. Think, I think it's uh, interesting. You bring up that scene because I, I think you're right. He is a bit of a bully in that scene because at that point he is so sure 
of what he's saying. Mm -hmm. There's no doubt. Mm -hmm. And I think this movie, its point is to sow doubt throughout this extremely long runtime. And I think, I don't think this movie works if you cut it down to even like two hours and 15 minutes. Like you need, you need that excess. Uh, Because otherwise I feel like it it happens too quickly. I think Garfield's turn happens way too quickly. Another thing I've learned from Twitter is that... uh... That Thelma. Marty needs he needs an editor. I mean that's that's for sure. You know, if she if she knew anything about uh editing, uh if she uh-huh. I, I can send her some tweets if she's on Twitter. Uh uh-huh. she could fix this with the, the George Lucas, you know, yes. the director's cut special edition. Two hundred and forty characters, get it done. That's <laughs> Couldn't do it. She, I mean, it would probably just be, you know, it'd be a thread from her. No. Just go on she would be on in the on. notes app and posting pictures of it. Yeah, it just, oh, no. God, who has time for that? Um, <laughs> I mean, yeah, like, it. that's the other thing that I, I have to really work at with these type of movies because uh, uh, your guest, uh, Jairo, uh, his co-host on the True Bromance Film Podcast. Uh, the Talent? I can't remember what you mean? I think. The Talent. Barry the Talent. Uh, I think it was The Witch. There was an episode they did, which I really dug because uh, Hiro was a big fan of it and Barry not so much. And since I like Barry uh, better uh, and I didn't really care for The Witch that much, uh, I liked that he was, you know, spewing that back at me, my own thoughts. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, the interesting point of the conversation was when they got into the religious aspects of it, when you're dealing with people who truly believe in this thing that you yourself as an audience member don't necessarily buy into like, how does, how does the film manage to like, cause you're supposed to have some level of empathy, something, some sort of understanding of them. And this, you know, in that film, it's religious mania sort of taking hold as far as, you know, this, this family, it's sort of under siege here you have these debates and I'm still shocked. And, you know, finally when we got around to watching again, how well the movie worked for me, because I don't have a particular side. Like, I think it's all Hope nonsense. Them. It's yeah. Like the, you know, I, I'm the one that's saying trample, you know, and I'm, I'm with Garfield initially. Now you can see how painful it is for him, but you know, his, his argument is that, uh, God will understand, you know, he would rather you continue to take another breath and like save your family and as you said, to have that internal belief and that relationship with God. And I'm thinking, uh, yeah, just trample because it's all just made up, you know, just, just, <laughs> just get through your day, my man. Like, you know, right. just get back, yeah. uh, get back to your hut. And I, I think that's with any of these type of films, that's what's so difficult is, uh, I don't think you can be like, I don't think you can be like halfway in with your sort of spiritual beliefs when it comes to these situations. I think everyone right. like in your day to day life, you can struggle with it, you know, in or out up and down. But when you come to this particular thing where it's like life and death or like, you know, extensive torture, uh, yeah, you're going to come down very much probably like Andrew Garfield or Adam driver, which are some of the more interesting scenes where you have two people that on the face of it should be in total agreement and their approach to handle this handle, like, you know, your, uh, earthly life is totally different. And I don't know about you, but like to me, Adam driver is totally unlikable because he, he is so committed that he seems totally unconcerned with, you know, what will actually happen to these people. Right. He's like completely inflexible. Like, just like, no, 
this well, is some the of these way it is. Poor villagers, it's it's a form of suicide because they're saying yes. like, man, my life is miserable. It's like this is hard work. Uh, you know, it's like this life is not what I want to have. And you're telling me if we die, uh, you know, we we have everything we want. That there's there's no fear, there's no struggle, there's no pain, and that that's a that's a really sort of creepy thing to have to deal with right where you're basically encouraging people to just toss away their lives yeah in the hopes of it not sucking ass like right. it does in, in yeah, silence. yeah and it, i think this film handles that beautifully yeah i do too and i think it handles it especially in the sequence when they first arrive there um and the people all come to them kind of in secret to you know to have mass right and you have those two very different interactions where you can see Garfield's character is terribly worried about these people. Like, what are we, what are we sending them out with? Right. And driver is like, well, we're here. We're, we're on a mission. Like he's very, just like we do the next thing, you know, and he's not thinking deeply about this. And I think to me, I saw that as like, you know, one of these is Scorsese as a young man. And one of them is him as an old man. Like he's thinking mm, about these things now, you know, and you know, you bring up this idea of like, you know, just, just get to the ne- get to your next breath, right? And as I was watching this movie, and it didn't occur to me the first time I watched it. It's only the second time I've watched it because, again, I love it, but it's not a movie you could just be like, oh, i got to spare three hours. Let me pop, pop silence in the old DVD player. Like, it's, <laughs> uh, it's a lot. Um, and it made me think of, you know, because I was raised with religion. You know, I'm sure you've heard this term, the doubting Thomas. Have you heard that term before? Is that like a part of, mm-hmm. right? So that, you know, of course, comes from the Bible where after, you know, after Jesus is being sent to his death, like someone comes and says, Thomas, I heard you know Jesus. I heard you know him. I heard you know him. And he denies knowing him three times. And that is seen as like, I can't believe you did that. How could you, how could you deny your master, your teacher, your friend? Um, and that is what Garfield's character is being asked to do. And I think it throws it in such an extreme light here where, even if you're a religious person, I think you have to start thinking like, man, what would I do? Like, I think when you learn about it in Sunday school, you learn about the Bible, you think like, oh, of course I would say I knew him. You know, he is everything. He's Jesus. But they're asking Garfield the same question here. And eventually you get to a point where you're like, I just want these people to live. I want to live. You know, and I think it's it's a really interesting way to do that, you know, to it's not just about him. It's about all these other people, like all these other people who have said like, okay, I don't believe, but they're telling him, no, we are still going to torture them unless you recant, unless you take that step. And then it's like, okay, Jesus loved all of us. So am I being a good Christian by saying I believe in Jesus or am I being a good Christian by saying I don't believe and I'm going to save these lives? And that is like a lot of times with religion, we don't deal with the real world consequences. But this is a very real world consequence and it is and Garfield is so great here and it's so moving just like the his facial expressions in this movie just kind of break me in half. Like as he's seeing these this torture happen, it looks as if it's happening to him. And that's a really difficult balance without it becoming pure melodrama. But I don't think it ever dips into that. It just becomes like, no, these are his people that he is preaching to and now directly because of him. They are suffering and dying. And that's a lot to take in. Well, the biggest issue I have with that is uh, he shouldn't have uh, nearly as much hair or it shouldn't be as thick because yeah. the, the man is great under constant hair, man. siege. Uh, he's under constant uh, distress. <laughs> uh, the things he's seeing uh, doesn't even like 
go that gray and like in nope. you know the older sequences. Still um, looking good, man. It, it is interesting. So because I was I was listening to you talk, I'm like you know I'm I'm trying to find my sort of foothold uh, into it, and it, it's funny like the, the the things that I could easily toss off. Uh, in that instance, where I'm like, just yeah, just just step just on step the on little it. Jesus face or whatever they've concocted. You know, you can you can justify it in some way where it's just like, well, that's not you know, it's not sacred to me, and it's it's probably like, uh, <laughs> it's probably like some sort of artificial knockoff Jesus thing. Like that's not the the, the actual <laughs> Jesus. It's not Jesus TM. But you know, there there's a little bit of the Adam Driver in me, like. Um, and as you were talking, I was thinking about it, like uh, like the Crucible, which uh, I I never really question why the characters would go to their doom uh, and not you know give up their their good name or give up like others, like and it's it's reversed here, right? So Andrew Garfield would be saving some other people, and he's given visual evidence that they will kill them. They will torture mm-hmm. them in front of them. And he's the one with a word can, can stop it. Um, but yeah, like I've, I've always, I, you know, that there's that famous, or I guess maybe infamous, infamous, I think in Scorsese, I can bring it up here. It's actually like on point Scorsese and De Niro bringing out, uh, LA Kazan to the Oscars for that honorary bit. And I've always admired and, came down the side of like Nick Nolte who worked with uh, Scorsese and Cape Fear Ed Harris were seen not clapping just stone face nope mm-hmm. I don't support this and I guess that's the thing with me where it's like you know that the the difference between what I would consider a selfish or selfless actor and I think you know naming names just to benefit yourself in your career throwing other people under the bus like i'm just like nope can't there's i i have right. no forgiveness in my heart for that but with garfield's character with his plight I, you know i do there's a good part of me that considers it a selfish act for him to like hold on for his own thing mm-hmm. so long when he can watch other people suffer and he's been a great influence on them like he's it's it's weird that sequence where he tells them to trample. I'm agreeing with him, but it's like it's okay. It's like they can cheapen their faith, but you you can't cheapen your faith. Like you can't do that. It's okay for them to do it, and it would be totally fine. Right. But if you do it, somehow it's more of a sin in God's eyes. Like there's this sort of ego to it that is hard for me to get past. But isn't that uh, ego which makes expected a really interesting film. since he, you know, he has the title, right? He's the Monsignor. He's the, he's the priest. He is the, he is the symbol. He is the symbol of the church, right? For these people. He is in a lot of ways, they're saving grace quite literally. And he has been shown that repeatedly by these actual people. So I could see. Oh, there we go. I see where you're putting the blame I on mean, the common folk. No, the horrible not, lives. I'm not blaming anyone, <laughs> but I'm saying like I can. I do agree with you that I think it is inherently a selfish act because I do truly believe that a person's faith, in a lot of ways, is their own fucking business. You know what I mean? Like you'd say whatever you want. You'd say that doesn't exist, and you take it home with you, and you believe or you don't, and that's totally up to you. Um, but I can understand where he's coming from, at least at the beginning. I think, especially before he meets and speaks to Liam Neeson's character, and I think that is a really interesting turning point for this movie, uh, where the two. Yeah, of them where do you talk. come down on on that? When Neeson is like, uh, you know, their their understanding of our religion is so 
far removed. And I, I don't think in that sequence he's necessarily blaming them. He's just saying like you can't overcome, you know, hundreds of years of like their culture and then trying to apply our knowledge to it. It's going to transform into something else. But he, I, the point he's trying to get across is like you were fighting so so hard for this thing that is so ever so slightly off that it might as well be like entirely different religion. And like, he's almost sort of putting that to Garfield's character as far as like, does that change matters for you then? Right. And I think the, the, the fault that I have in Garfield's character is that I don't think Neeson's character is saying anything that different from what he's already been told by Japanese people in power. Right. But it comes from another priest and it comes from a white guy, so all of a sudden now it's like oh, maybe I better listen. This this guy might know who he's talking about. Oh, whoa, whoa. Hold, hold on now. <laughs> <laughs> Let me defend Garfield just a little bit. Um, he's he's not seen yet. I mean, maybe that's in the extended cut. Uh, maybe Thelma saved us. Uh, he's uh-huh. not seen <laughs> Qui Gon Jinn pull out his lightsaber and behead a man in front of him. Maybe, that's there true. may be some. Some, some taint <laughs> the the message they're delivering, you know, covered yeah. in blood. Yeah, no, that's that's absolutely true. But I think it's just interesting that I don't think he's saying anything that drastically different. But he's hearing it from someone who was raised in a Western world, right? So he can. So I think the communication's a little bit easier. They they have a prior connection. I just think it's interesting that like we're get, giving the same message. We're just delivering it in a different way. And especially because this is a man who at least at one point he respected and he was an older priest and probably someone who helped train him. So I think there's there's a lot going on between these two characters. And I think, you know, for for Scorsese, this may be one of the calmer Scorsese movies. Like there are, of course, moments of horrific violence in this movie, like from the very first scene. But most of this movie is two to three or four people just kind of talking to one another. And he just kind of lets you sit with it, you know. And of course, you know, it's a pun, but like he uses silence very well in this movie. There's a lot of these long moments where it just lets you sit with what's going on and lets and lets you take it in. And in some ways, the opposite of Wolf of Wall Street, right? A movie that doesn't give you a lot of time to take this in. This movie gives you nothing but time to take this all, all in and think about like, what would I do? I think it's almost impossible to be engaged with this movie and not have the thought, what would I do in in this situation? Yeah. I mean, you, <laughs> you're going to find out very quickly if you want to be, if you want even want to entertain those notions. And if you yeah. don't, you, you probably check out, uh, with the first, uh, Neeson appearance. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like, nope, I want no part of that slow drip, uh, Ooh. boiling water. Nope. I'm good. Uh, yeah, I mean, just comparing the runtime, it is shocking. This one's like 20 minutes shorter than Wolf of Wall Street. It and, does not uh, feel it. <laughs> you would think it would be at a minimum no. the opposite. But this movie, and a lot of times when we say, oh, God, this movie feels so long, that's an insult. But I don't think it is in this case. This movie feels effortful. And it should be like this. Is, these are these are really difficult topics that Scorsese is not only wrestling with here, but has clearly been wrestling with since all the way back in Mean Streets. Like this is the recurring theme that he's consistently going back to. Not just mobster movies. He actually is thinking about faith and thinking about the nature of the universe and his place in it and what that all means. And I think this is 
this is kind of the perfect movie for that. And I, I do think it's really interesting to compare it, like we mentioned, between this and Last Temptation, because they are th- similar subject matter, very different movies. Well, you certainly don't have the uh, the hero of uh, JC there, where there's some <clears throat> some buy-in that's like, okay, what the message he's spreading, like ultimately this this ends in something good for humanity, maybe not necessarily for him, but like, uh, I, I I don't think it's a detriment of the film because it's certainly you know it had its own controversies, um, but you know if it was just like say you know the uh, Andrew Garfield character Rod- Rodriguez here, and you didn't have the Last Temptation of Jesus Christ over it, I think you would maybe give up on the character a mm-hmm. little bit quicker. Right. Um, here, I, th- I think we've seen a pretty common like through line in, in his films is that there there seems to be like this abusive relationship that young men take on with like with older men that they think will like lead them to like sort of like a, a clear line through like basically handling their own masculinity as far as like, here's the correct way. So like in Goodfellas, you see a young boy being like, Oh, this is, this is how you become a man. This is, this right. is how you do it. Taxi driver. You, you've mentioned that you have like this sort of listless character who's looking for someone to point him in the right direction. And unfortunately it's, uh, you know, Raymond's dad from everybody loves Raymond. That is the only one. Is it the wizard? Is that his nickname yes. in the, in yes. taxi driver? Peter Boyle. Uh, and yep. what does he steer him to? He's like, yeah, you need, you need a gun. I know a guy We need, you know, right. I can get you a gun. Like that's, and so it's, it's all these like really like clear cut paths. Um, that sort of damning, like like a damning indictment of the characters. And in this instance, it is like their, their faith in their mentor, Liam Neeson. Like we don't really know the guy, but we know enough. to That's a dangerous situation. And I don't know about you, but I have zero confidence that the boyfriend from girls or Spider-Man are going to be able to come in and be like, they'll fix it. (laughs) You know, they'll, they'll get in there and they'll talk to the right people and they'll be charming and convincing. Everything's going to work out. And it's interesting. Like, they show up and it doesn't even seem like they think like, I don't even know what their thought is as far as their plan mm-hmm. is. It's like, they're just going to show up and see what happens. Yeah. It's interesting. You bring that up because I think it's one of the things I like most about this movie is that the first 10 minutes of this movie very much sets up a standard hero's journey plot, right? There's some sort of MacGuffin out there. And the MacGuffin in this case is Liam Neeson's character. Like this guy is in trouble. We need, we need to go help him. He clearly would not have done this unless he was under duress. So we're going to, you know, we'll, we'll find someone to sneak us in to Japan. And they do that, right? Uh, they find a way in and then you feel like, okay, they're going to take steps to rescue this guy. And it takes a long time. Of course, he finally gets to this guy and then he's convinced basically, at least in, in name, he's convinced that like, Oh, this, don't bother everything, you know, don't do any of this, any of the stuff you've been doing. So it flips that on its head to the point of he ends up, you know, living with, you know, being side by side with Liam Neeson's character and like getting rid of not only like denying his faith, but getting rid of articles of his faith that are trying to be snuck in. So he's basically going completely against what he originally came here for. But then the movie ends, and I think it's I think there's some debate. I remember you having like a different take on the end of this movie when we talked about it. But to me, it always felt like, oh, he is he is still of the faith. He has kept this with them the whole time. And it was 
with him when he died. And he was with him when his body was burned. So he still held, literally, in this case, held the symbol of Jesus close to his heart, even at the moments where you think like he has let go of this entirely. Yeah, it was felt like, I don't know, it just didn't ring true for me. Like, like I felt like that was a um, sort of a fantastical little flourish there on the end of it where it was more about our our faith and what that he still held on to his beliefs like i I didn't i never bought into this physical object that Mm. was there because you know the uh they seem to be pretty thorough (laughs) in their in their uh i don't mean maybe it was in his hair i don't know the whole yeah see there you go there it is and I, i felt like it was um it's like it was strangely comforting to me, like for a film that's that makes you uncomfortable, no matter I guess where you fall uh, spiritually, all time. It, it felt like the the happy ending that Scorsese wanted to have, like that that felt like his his bit, like mm-hmm. that. Even though he's gone through probably his entire life these struggles of of faith. Uh, that there's something that's like marked him that he knows that he'll never be rid of. I don't mean to make it sound like it's some sort of curse. I think he would agree with that. Like, I think he would agree with like that. It's just like an assessment. honest answer. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah that, that this is just always going to be a part of me. Uh, and that that was my that was my read of it. Was I was like, yeah, I don't, I didn't, I didn't believe in the literal. This is what's mm. in that. This sort of, sort of burning uh, uh, coffin of sorts, but. Um, yeah, that that I didn't, I'm, and I'm not trying to be like a uh, one of those like uh, clickbaity articles where it's like you know we need to talk about the last Let's talk about the of ending silence. of silence <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> for those five readers who are really interested. Right. <laughs> no, but I think you bring up a good point that I think you know even in the world of the movie this may be purely symbolic, right? Even the way the camera mm-hmm. zooms in it, zooms in yeah. on it at the end, it's very presentational. And it feels like, you know, whether this quote unquote really happened in the world of the movie, I think it's beside the point. Um, but I think I think I don't think it's even arguable that, you know, his faith is something this character's faith is something that is still personal to him. And no matter how many times he had to negate it in public, it's still there. It's still there deep within him. And I think to me, what Scorsese is saying is like what you believe in your heart is much more important than anything you can say in public because that can be twisted and that can be changed and, you know, you can be threatened and you need to keep living, but your faith is internal. It doesn't, you don't have to go to church. You don't have to do all these things. It's about what you believe yourself. It is interesting that a man who has made his life uh, telling and sharing stories uh, with uh, millions of people, uh, seems to be saying that the the real problem with these these characters, these uh, men who are preaching the faith to others, is uh, is when they try to verbalize it, uh, when they try to have a conversation with their fellow man. That's where the problems happen, and maybe that conversation should always be one sided, should just be in their head, uh, and that's you and God. That's where it's safe. That's all that. That's, that's, uh, that's that the opposite. The opposite notion of taxi driver. I, I, I don't think Travis Bickle need to keep talking to himself. I think that's no, when the problems he started. Should, <laughs> he should stop that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> All right. Um, so that kind of ends the episode, but this puts us in a strange situation, one that we haven't been in so far. Usually, I ask you, like Mike, if you could picture yourself in 1996 or 1972, what would hmm. you think would come next? What are you expecting? But now, our next episode will be about a movie that has not 
It's not been shown to many people at this point. It's just about to come out. Uh, hopefully, uh, I will get to see it in a theater. Uh, Mike will probably watch it on Netflix because he lives in Kentucky. It's just, you know, your options. I have some limited. breaking news oh. to my co-host. I, I looked up before uh, before this podcast because you were you were talking about it that you're gonna you're gonna be able to see it on the fifteenth, right? Yes. So is that two weeks really, or just under yeah. two weeks? Yep. Mm-hmm. I'm getting it uh, um, like five days early. I'm getting it hey, the, the weekend before. There you go. So I will be able to see it on the big Excellent. screen. So there we go. As Scorsese intended. Good. I love that. Yes. So Mike. I mean, it seems silly to ask, like, are you looking forward to this movie? Of course you are. It's a Scorsese release. But what are your what are your expectations of The Irishman or, you know, as you would probably call it, Goodfellas 3? What is, what is your... Well, you kind of <laughs> touched on that because uh, as much as I dragged my, my feet on rewatching Silence, uh, I don't know if that's the one that I would tell people to, to watch right before The, the Irishman because mm-hmm. it... It's put me in a completely different headspace yet again. Uh, and honestly, if Silence was like Scorsese's last film, it feels like sort of the perfect comment to me as far as like all the, the, the themes he struggled with. I, I know just having the Wikipedia page up that our uh, super fan uh, guest expert Hiro uh, loves Kundun that this is mentioned as the third in his like trilogy of faith with The Last Temptation. Jesus. <laughs> We skipped over, you know, the, the middle part. The Empire Strikes Back, presumably, of of this particular threesome. Um, I know that it's a it's certainly a marketing hook that the band's all back together for, like, you know, the Goodfellas Casino. and Pacino for the first time. So that's exciting. Pacino for the which, yeah, the and from what I've read, he's like gives the the best or most interesting performance. So I don't maybe that's the the new shine on a Scorsese joint. I don't know, uh, but yeah, I. I have to say that uh, even when he was trying to get this made and it was a big hubbub that Netflix like wrote this giant check for it, uh, there was a part of me that was like, "That's uh, this. Don't you have a, yet another passion project lying around? Can we go? Can we skip down to the next one?" I'm not as excited. I'm just excited it's a Scorsese movie. Right. Uh, but if you're asking me for like the content in particular, like the plot, not not so much. It feels mm-hmm. like a layup material for Scorsese, but I'm sure that I'll find different things that I'm not expecting. But uh, Silent 2 is what I was really hoping <laughs> that he would double down on. Let's see if Netflix would write that check. Yes. Silence 2, even quieter. I love it. Yeah, let's, let's make that one. <laughs> uh, I'm really looking forward to this movie, and I've heard good things, of course, already. Um I've heard Pacino's performance is very showy, which is not a surprise. Pacino has made a late career out of being pretty showy. I think early in his career, he was like a very subtle actor. Like there's a lot, like if you look at him in Godfather Part Two, Dog Day Afternoon, there's a lot of subtle work being done. But then you get to like Scent of a Woman. Like there's a lot of, there's a lot of over the top stuff. So that should be interesting. I'm really excited to see like this got Joe Pesci out of retirement. Like, he had no interest in continuing to act. He, Scorsese had offered him roles in other movies before this, and he was like, nope, not going to do it. But this brought him back. So, And he's getting rave reviews. Like, he's of all the reviews I've seen, he's getting kind of the most shine between even with De Niro and Pacino in that same movie. So that's that's pretty impressive. So you apparently follow a bunch of Joe Pesci, like, you know, Home Alone super fans. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I probably shouldn't mention this because he's one of the unmentionables, but uh, Louis C.K. 
had a funny story about attempting to contact Joe Pesci to, I guess, be on an episode of Louie or something. Uh, or maybe it was the other show that he uh, that went like straight to his website or whatever. <laughs> and uh, you should check it out. Even for like Louis C.K. Uh, haters, that one still ages well because it was basically a grouchy old man like I looked at some of your stuff. You should stop doing that. You're not funny. <laughs> like is what he wrote back <laughs> to Lucy K. <laughs> Love it. So, so I'm kind of interested to seeing uh, Joe Pesci come back because uh, he's apparently very hard to impress to get yeah. back out there. So even his old buddies, De Niro and Scorsese, were like trying to drag him into this. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, so yeah, that, that that's a good point. I I, I want to see him on the screen again. And uh, yeah, Dave is just a Pacino hater which that's right yeah. uh the depressing fact is when you i'm just ageist i don't like on. him as an old man just uh go back to well, young pacino when he was hot you're like <laughs> yeah like this version of uh pacino has been around since Civil woman i'm like that's at this point that's like longer than the like subtle yeah. years of yeah. pacino i mean because you know i mean it's like danny collins uh speaking of super fan hiro big fan of that movie uh, what's the movie with Keanu Reeves, Devil's Advocate? I mean, there's a lot of showy performances in the last. You know, I, I like him when, the things you're mentioning. I'm digging. I'm I'm liking his version of the devil, and I like. No, his I version mean he's of, supposed uh, to be showy there. It absolutely works for the movie, and you know, it's a. Uh, I don't think we'll ever cover that on this show. I don't know who directed that, but I don't think we're hitting the Devil's Advocate. But it's interesting to watch him and Keanu, a you know not showy actor. <laughs> go back and forth in that movie but it'll be interesting in in a scorsese movie because scorsese tends to get great performances like we've gone two months and there's i can't think of a single performance that we've covered where you're like oh yeah that's over the top or that's ridiculous and he really except maybe new york new york from my perspective but other than that great performances kind of all the way through i just had to get one last dig in there sorry about that mike yeah that just uh just really mean spirited yep. for you to talk about. Much like New York, New York. Like, <laughs> mean spirited. Much like New which York. Which was great. <laughs> we need more mean spirited musicals, I think. All right. That's a good place to end. All right. So that's <laughs> the end of this episode. Uh, make sure, uh, if you can, to go see The Irishman in theaters. Uh, because uh, if you have a chance, you're one of the select few because it's not playing on that I mean, many screens. So. Look, I'm getting that chance uh, before Netflix. That's the important distinction yep, absolutely. Uh, in Kentucky. So, yep. yeah, it's uh, just uh, about five or six days early, but that's that's fine. Hey, I'll take it. A week early? Get that. That's pretty good. Yep. All right, so if you want to hear more from us, you can follow us on Twitter, at DirectedByPod, or you can donate to the show and get the full-length interviews from our experts, like Hyro from the True Romance Film Podcast, at patreon.com slash podcastdirected. Just like